Welcome back, brothers and sisters in Christ. I hope you're all doing well today. This is Seed Wars number 26, and we've been looking at the Proto-Evangelium and how it plays out throughout the Bible. Uh, for those of you who are new to this, the Proto-Evangelium is in Genesis 3.15 in the garden after the fall of Adam and Eve. It's where God pronounces um, basically uh, a prophecy, if you will, about things to come. And God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. It's probably one of the most important prophecies in the entire scripture. This is a prophecy revealing to us that there are now two seed lines going forward. There's the seed of the woman, and that is the patriarchs who are going to lead all the way down through Noah and Abraham and eventually Jesus Christ, who is the Messiah. Without question, he fulfilled every single Old Testament scripture that there was, every single prophet, every single psalm that, that spoke of a coming Messiah, Jesus fulfilled. And so praise God for that. And um, this prophecy also talks about this battle, this enmity between the seed of the woman leading through the Messiah and the seed of the serpent. And that is a literal seed line. It's it's a spiritual there's a spiritual application there as well, but it is a literal physical seed line. And we know that's true because we saw the Nephilim in the Old Testament. We've seen the giants in the in even after the flood. And so these are hybrids. They do not have fully human DNA. Even though that's hard for us to put our hands around and wrap our minds around Nonetheless, that's what the word teaches, that there were people on the planet back then that were not completely human. They were not made completely in the Adamic race's nature. They're different. And not only are they different physically, but according to the book of Enoch, they've got these demonic spirits living inside of them as well. And so they are an altogether different group of people, both physically and spiritually, and the Bible has a lot to say about it, it's, it, but it's complicated. We have all of these very obscure stories in the Old Testament that are really hard to sift through and get to the bottom of. And I think one of them is this story with Jacob and Esau that we've been looking at over the past few lectures. Now, if you missed the last lecture, I would just tell you that it would, it would certainly behoove you to go back and watch it before you watch this one. But I know how people skip around and bounce around, and so we are going to do a quick review, not only for those people, but also to sort of set up this lecture for, the, for what we want to look at today. So, so let's proceed forward with a, a, a quick review. Now, in the last lecture, I, I took my time and we really broke down all these words and these concepts. I'm not going to do that today for sake of time. If you want to hear that, then I would suggest you go back to the preceding lecture. So uh, Genesis 25, Rebecca, his wife, conceived, and the children within her womb struggled together. And she said, if it be so, why am I this way? And she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, two nations are in thy womb. Two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels, and one people shall be the stronger. Then the other people and the elder shall serve the younger. Rebecca is now learning that she's got twins and that the twins are at enmity with each other. They're in hostility and competition with each other. 
The older one, Esau, is going to be stronger than the younger one, Jacob. But Jacob's going to end up reigning over Esau. And this prophecy will come to fruition later on. Verse 25, the first one came out red all over like a hairy garment. And they called him Esau, which means hairy. And he's literally covered from head to toe in red hair. And after that came his brother, and his, and his hand took hold of Esau's heel, and his name was therefore called Jacob, which means supplanter. He tried to supplant Esau's birth by grabbing his heel, which just demonstrates again that there is enmity between these boys. And the boys grew, and Esau was a cunning hunter and a man of the field, and Jacob was a plain man dwelling in tents. Now, a cunning hunter and a man of the field means a deceptive man, uh, a man full of guile. We're going to see as we continue looking at the different uh, scriptures and texts out there that Esau was a hunched over man. He was a very primitive man. He, was a, a, he did not have a lot of manners. He wasn't a learned man. He was hairy. He was a hunter and a killer. We're going to learn that he was the, the hunter of all hunters, that he truly excelled in hunting. And, and as we'll see, he becomes a man hunter as well. Animals aren't going to get it done for him. There's going to come a point in time when he needs to kill something that's a little bit more of a challenge, and that is man. And this is totally different than Jacob, who is a plain moral man. Now, to be a plain man means you're an upright man, both physically and morally. He's a, a man who dwells in tents. And this is where all of the academies were held to learn of the Torah. Men who dwelled in tents in this time were learned, educated men in the ways of the Lord, learning the Torah and all of the laws of Deuteronomy and Leviticus and so on and so forth. And so what we're seeing here is that Jacob is a man of the flesh. And es uh, or excuse me, Esau is a man of the flesh. And Jacob is a man of the spirit. That's, that's what's being demonstrated here. And Isaac loved Esau because he did eat of his venison, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Now, we looked in the last account. One of the reasons why Isaac loved Esau so much is because of the food that he provided. The food that he put on the table was one of the reasons why Isaac loved Esau. And Jacob was sodding pottage, and Esau came from the field, and he was faint. Now, this is where we are going to occupy most of our time today. We are going to unpack verse 29 in a very um, interesting way. So we've got this situation here, and this is what the Bible is really notorious for, is it'll give you just a couple of really vague details there's really no context of time, um, and, and we're just sort of left with a vague story that, that we really don't have a full understanding of. So Jacob was sodding pottage, and Esau came from the field, and he was faint. And Esau said to Jacob, Feed me, I pray you, with that red pottage, for I am faint. Therefore his name was called Edom. And Jacob said, Sell me your birthright. And Esau said, I'm at the point to die. What profit shall this birthright do to me anyway? And so Jacob said, well, then swear to me this day. And he did, and he sold him his birthright. So one of the keys here is this word faint. For Esau to be so faint 
It means to be languishing in pain and to be totally wearied, either with a great journey or a great toil that you've just overcome. And so, even though we're not given the context of time, I can tell you that it hasn't just been a matter of a couple of hours that Esau's out patrolling for food, but rather he's been on a long, arduous hunt, and that hunt ended up in a very wicked, vicious battle with none other than King Nimrod himself, who's also a mighty hunter of the field. Now, before we look at this interesting account between Esau and Nimrod, let's fast forward to the end of Isaac's life where Jacob is going to receive the blessing, the birthright. Now, it came to pass when Isaac was old and his eyes were so dim that he could not see that he called Esau his older son and he said to him, My son, behold, now I am old and I do not know the day of my death. Now, therefore, Please take your weapons, your quiver, and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt wild game for me. And make me a savory meal such as I love, and bring it to me that I may eat of it, that my soul may bless you before I die. Now Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to Esau, and when Esau went to the field to hunt the game, Rebekah spoke to Jacob, saying, My son, obey my voice according to what I command you. Go now to the flock and bring me from there two choice kids of the goats, and I will make savory food from them for your father such as he loves. Then you shall take it to your father that he may eat it and that he may bless you before his death. And Jacob said to Rebekah his mother, Look, Esau my brother is a hairy man and I'm a smooth-skinned man and perhaps my father will feel me and I shall seem to be a deceiver to him and I shall bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. But his mother said to him, Let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go and get them for me. And he went and he got them and he brought them to his mother and his mother made savory food such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the choice clothes of her eldest son, which were in her house, and she put them on Jacob, her younger son. Now, spoiler alert, in a moment we're going to look at an, an interesting rendition regarding these clothes. These clothes that Rebekah takes out of her tent that belonged to Esau, but she puts them on Jacob in order to solidify this deception to Isaac. We're going to find out that these were the clothes that Nimrod was wearing when Esau slayed him. And we'll look at that in a moment. Continuing on, verse 16, And Rebekah put the skins of the kids of the coats on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. Then she gave the savory food and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son Jacob. So he went to his father, and his father said, Who are you, my son? And Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I've done just as you told me. Please arise, sit, and eat of my game, that you may bless my soul. And Isaac said to Jacob, Please come near, that I may fill you, my son, whether you, whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, and he felt him, and he said, The voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him, because his hands were hairy like his brother's. And then he said, Are you really my son Esau? And Jacob said, I am. So Jacob brought the meal near to him, and he ate, and he brought him wine, and he drank, 
And then his father Isaac turned to him and said, Come near now and kiss me, my son. And he came near and he kissed him, and he smelled the smell of his clothing, and he blessed him and said, Surely the smell of my son is like the smell of a field which the Lord has blessed. Therefore may God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and in plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be master over your brother and let your mother's sons bow down to you and cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be those who bless you. Now it happened as soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob and Jacob had left that Esau his brother came in from hunting. And his father Isaac said to him, Who are you? And so he said, I'm your son, your firstborn Esau. And then Isaac trembled exceedingly and said, Who? Where is the one who had hunted game and brought it to me? I ate all of it before you came, and I've blessed him, and indeed he shall be blessed. And when Esau heard the words of his father, he cried with an exceedingly great and bitter cry, and he said to his father, Bless me also, O my father. But his father said, Your brother came with deceit, and he's taken away your blessing. And Esau said, is he not rightly named Jacob? For he supplanted me this two times. He took away my birthright, and now look, he's taken away my blessing. And he said, Have you not reserved a blessing for me? And then Isaac answered and said to Esau, Indeed, I've made him your master, and all of his brethren I've given to him as servants. With grain and wine I have sustained him. What shall I now do for you, my son? And Esau said to his father, Have you only one blessing, my father? Bless me also. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. And then Isaac his father answered and said to him, Behold, your dwelling shall be of the fatness of the earth and of the dew of heaven from above. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. And it shall come to pass, when you become restless, that you shall break his yoke from upon your neck. And so Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said in his heart, the days of mourning for my father are at hand, and then I will kill or slew my brother Jacob. So it's a pretty, pretty long account. We, we went through that all in great detail in the past lecture. We're going to look at some interesting details about this account that shed some new light on this story going forward. Now, I want to continue to establish this concept of the seed of the woman versus the seed of the serpent. And in a future lecture, we're going to look at the physiology genetically of how Jacob can be the seed of the woman and Esau is of the seed of the serpent, genetically speaking. But before we get there, let's just review what the Book of Jubilees has to say about this. In the second year thereof, Rebekah bare to Isaac two sons, Jacob and Esau. And Jacob was a smooth and upright man, and Esau was a fierce, a man of the field, and hairy, and Jacob dwelt in tents. We see that that's almost identical to the King James. You'll notice that the way Jubilees mentions it, it was Jacob and Esau, and Jacob's name comes first, even though he's the younger brother, because he has the birthright. So he's now considered to be that of the older. And we see here that it mentions that Esau was a fierce man. And that's exactly right. Esau was not a man to be messed around with. He was a very fierce man, a wild man, and a killer. And as the youths grew, Jacob learned to write, but Esau did not learn, for he was a man of the field and a hunter, and he learnt war, and all of his deeds were fierce. 
So we see here a split now where Jacob is a pacifist. He's a, he's a gentle, easygoing guy. He's not interested in hunting and killing, but rather he's interested in learning the Torah, learning to read and write, and becoming an educated, sophisticated man. Whereas Esau is the exact opposite. He has no desire to go into the tents and to sit and learn. He's not cut out for school. He wants to go out and hunt. And it says here that he learned war and that all of his deeds were fierce. Verse 15, and Abraham loved Jacob, but Isaac loved Esau. And Abraham saw the deeds of Esau. And he knew that in Jacob should his name and his seed be called. And he called Rebekah and he gave commandment regarding Jacob, for he knew that she too loved Jacob much more than Esau. And he said to her, My daughter, watch over my son Jacob, for he shall be in my stead on this earth, and for a blessing into the midst of children of men, and for the glory of the whole seed of Shem. So we're seeing a situation here where the seed of the woman is being demonstrated. Abraham is the patriarch. God is the one who pulled him out of the Ur of the Chaldees and sent him walking to Canaan. God is the one who made a blood covenant oath with Abraham and said, I'm going to give you the holy land one day and that it's going to pass down from your seed to seed. Abraham is the one that God said, I'm going to bless you with so many seeds that it's going to be as many as the stars in the sky and as uh, uh, sands on the seashores. And so Abraham is the true patriarch of this situation. And it says here in verse 16 that he saw the deeds of Esau and he knew that in Jacob should his name and his seed be called. What does that mean? It means that he observed Esau and saw that he was a wicked and vile man and there was no way that he was going to pass the seed of the woman and the blessings through that wicked child, that the seed was going to pass through Jacob. And so Abraham took control of the situation by going to his, his daughter-in-law, Rebekah, and he gave her commandment regarding Jacob. And this goes back to the notion that when the patriarch or the matriarch, when the mother or father figure gives you command in those days, you obey your mother and your father. That's one of the Ten Commandments. Obey them so that things may go well with you. And so now Rebecca's given a direct commandment from her father-in-law, the patriarch Abraham. And this is exactly why in the future she's going to go to her son and give him commandment saying, go fetch two kids of the goats. Because Rebecca also realizes now that Jacob is the promised seed. And it's absolutely imperative that Isaac passes the birthright, not to his eldest son Esau, but to Jacob. And so that's why she's willing to go through all of the great deception in order to deceive her husband. Now we see here that Abraham actually refers to his daughter-in-law as a daughter. Because, you know, once you're into the family now, you, you, are, you are adopted into the family as an heir. So, my daughter, watch over my son Jacob. He means grandson here. For he shall be in my stead and for a blessing amongst men. And for the glory of the whole seed of Shem. Shem was one of the three sons of Noah. He is one of the three boys who helped repopulate the entire planet after the flood. Shem is the father of the Shemites, who would later be called the Semites. 
who are the Hebrews, who become the Jewish nation, the Israelites. And so uh, Abraham is making it clear that this seed goes all the way back to Shem after the flood. But in a minute, he's going to even go back further before the flood. Verse 18, For I know that the Lord will choose him to be a people for possession unto himself above all people that are upon the face of the earth. And behold, Isaac my son loveth Esau more than Jacob, but I see that thou truly loves Jacob. What Abraham here is saying to Rebekah is, Look, I know my son, your husband, loves Esau. But I see that you recognize the truth, Rebekah. You see Esau for who he is, and you love Jacob because he's a righteous man, and I agree with you. And so we're going to have to overcome, you know, overpower Isaac's decision in, in, in this situation. Verse 20, And still further to thy kindness to him, and let thine eyes be upon him in love, for he will be a blessing unto us on this earth from henceforth unto all generations of the earth. Let thy hands be strong, and let thy heart rejoice in your son Jacob, for I have loved him far beyond all my sons. This is Abraham saying that I love my grandson Jacob even more than I love all my boys. He will be blessed forever, and his seed will fill the whole earth. And if a man can number the sand of the earth, his seed also will be numbered. That's basically what God said to Abraham. And now Abraham is passing that same mantle down to Jacob, declaring that he is the seed of the woman. And we know how that prophecy in Genesis 3.15 goes. The seed of the woman is one day going to crush the head of the seed of the serpent. And that's going to be the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who is in the lineage that we're describing here. Verse 23, And all the blessings wherewith the Lord has blessed me and my seed shall belong to Jacob and his seed always. And in his seed shall my name be blessed. And the name of my fathers, Shem, who was after the flood, and Noah, who was before the flood, and Enoch, and Mahaliel, and Enos, and Seth, and Adam. He goes all the way back to the source, Adam and Eve, through the line of Seth. Not through Cain, because Cain is the wicked seed line, but Seth is the righteous seed line that passes all the way down to Abraham himself. And these shall serve to lay the foundations of the heaven and to strengthen the earth and to renew all the luminaries which are in the firmament. And he called Jacob before the eyes of Rebekah his mother, and he kissed him, and he blessed him, and he said, Jacob, my beloved son, whom my soul loveth, May God bless thee from above the firmament, and may he give thee all the blessings wherewith he blessed Adam, Enoch, Noah, and Shem. And all the things which he told me, and all the things which he promised to give me, may he cause those things to cleave to thee and to thy seed forever, according to the days of heaven above earth. Now, when you're Rebecca, and you're witnessing this situation going down, where Abraham has made this proclamation to her boy, Jacob. Is it any wonder why in the future, when she overhears the old man, Isaac, who's blind and dim-witted at this point, ready to pronounce the birthright to Esau, that of course, she has to intervene. 
because she knows that this is God's will. This is the will going all the way back to Abraham. And even beyond that, this is the seed of the woman and the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15 and the Proto-Evangelium. So she'll go at any lengths possible to make sure that Esau does not receive the birthright, just as she should. And she was given commandment from Abraham regarding Jacob. So she's just following through with that command. Verse 28, And the spirits of Mastema shall not rule over thee or thy seed, Jacob to turn you from the Lord, who is thy God, from henceforth forever. And may the Lord God be a father to you and your firstborn son, and to the people always. Go in peace, my son. And they both went forth together from Abraham, that's Jacob and Rebekah. And Rebekah loved Jacob with all of her heart, with all of her soul, very much more than Esau. But Isaac loved Esau more than he loved Jacob. This here, the spirits of Mastema, May the spirits of Mastema not rule over you or your seed. Mastema is involved with Satan and the fallen angels. Now, when you read some of the Targums, which are all of the written and oral traditions that the Second Temple rabbis expanded upon, you know, these are 2,000-year-old documents that the rabbis describe regarding the the Torah the ancient rabbis believe that the reason why Isaac became blind in his old age is because God afflicted him with blindness and it's multifactorial but one of the reasons why God gave him blindness is because Isaac was blind to Esau's unrighteousness that he loved him. He was his son. He loved him like we all love our children. And he wasn't, he was, he was too close to the situation to be removed from who Esau really was. And because of Isaac's blindness, because of his purposeful ignorance to overlook Esau's wickedness, then God inflicted him on physical blindness. You know, back in these days, it was sort of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth and let the punishment fit the crime. And if you're going to be blind to what your son Esau is doing, Isaac, that's fine. You're not going to get kicked out of the family. You're not going to lose your salvation. You're still part of the family. You're, you're still a major patriarch. But there are consequences for our decisions. And so God's going to allow you to be afflicted with blindness. Now, as providence would have it, it's this blindness of Isaac that's going to allow Esau to lose the birthright and for the birthright to be passed to the chosen seed, exactly as Genesis 25 said it would when the boys were in the womb, that the older may be stronger than the younger, but the younger is going to serve the older. And so it's really fascinating how God supernaturally weaves things together throughout the story in a great depth. Now, I want to take a moment to say that we're drawing from these apocryphal texts and some of the Dead Sea Scrolls. We're finding that they're giving us these additional details. For example, we just read the Book of Jubilees. It tells us this interesting account of how Abraham loved Jacob and he saw the deeds of Esau, that they were wicked, and that he knew in Jacob would be his seed, and he called Rebekah forward, and, and he blessed them, and so on and so forth. 
None of that is given to us in the King James Bible. But we have to ask, is, is this consistent? Is it a possibility that it, this could have happened? Could have Abraham really witnessed the boys being born and, and watched the way that they grew up? And the answer is yes. Um, we're told in Genesis 25 that Abraham lived 175 years old. And we know that he was 100 years old when Isaac was born. And then when Isaac was 40, he got married to Rebekah. And when he was 60, the boys were born. So if Abraham had Isaac at 100 years old, and then Isaac got married 40 years later, that would make Abraham 140 years old at their wedding. And then we know the boys were born 20 years later. So that would make Abraham 160 years old at their birth. And if Abraham died at 175 years old, then that means that he was alive when the boys were born and he was actually able to observe them growing up until their 15th birthday. Now, in today's years, you might think, well, that's still pretty young. But back then, they considered you to be a man at 13. People were, you know, were having children much earlier in, the, in, in those years. And so Abraham would have had 15 years to witness the birth and the lives of Jacob and Esau. And that's plenty of time for him to determine what kind of manner of men they were. And so it stands the reason that he would have given his blessing to Jacob because he observed that Jacob was a moral and upright man. So the King James Bible does substantiate, at least in the chronicity and timelines, that what we just read in Jubilees is a very possible and likely account. Now, moving forward, I want to take a few moments and look at a famous historian by the name of Louis Ginsburg, who was born in the 1800s and lived till he was in 1953. Ginsburg was a famous professor. He's a Lithuanian Jew who was a lifelong student of ancient Hebraic literature. He attended the University of Strasbourg and got his degrees in ancient Semitic languages. So he spoke and wrote Hebrew fluently. And he committed most of his life to studying the Torah as well as all of the Targums, which are the oral traditions of the rabbis, the Palestinian and Jonathan Targums. He also studied the Babylonian Talmud. Now, there is a tremendous amount of things in the Talmud that I disagree with, especially all of their doctrines and a lot of their belief systems. But what's interesting about the Talmud is, of course, we know that the Israelites were taken into captivity for 70 years in the nation of Babylon. And while they spent 70 years, which is five generations, they went through and documented all of the historical records that they understood and knew of that time regarding the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And so as a religious text, I don't find any value in it at all. But as a historical text, I think it provides a tremendous amount of information regarding the different events throughout Genesis and Exodus and so on and so forth. And so there can be some value at looking at it 
purely from a historical aspect. But Ginsburg was also known to have studied all of the Apocrypha, that's the books that were in between the Old and New Testament, such as Enoch, Jubilees, Jasher. He even mentions Josephus quite a bit in his writings. Josephus, of course, was the famous historian who wrote the Antiquities of the Jews, who also had a, a lot of commentary about the uh, legends and traditions of the, of the Old Testament. And so, you know, this professor, he, he spent his whole life uh, becoming very educated and dedicated to learning the oral and written traditions of his ancestors, the Hebrews. And he put all of this together in a compilation, basically his life's work in, in these volumes known as the Legends of, of the Jews or the Legends of the Bible, which were published in 1909. And there are many, many volumes of texts that Ginsburg elaborated on. And so he has some very interesting commentary about the story of Jacob, Esau, and I think some of it's very irrelevant. And again, we're not looking at this through the lens that it's Holy Spirit breathed, uh, such as the King James Bible. But what it does do is it, it, it tells us what all of the rabbis and the traditions of the fathers who passed down their stories from father to son and father to son thousands of years ago. And so you can look at it more as a commentary, but I think it, it sheds some interesting light on, on what we're looking at in this particular study. Now, there's a very interesting analogy that Ginsburg uses in his book, Legends of the Bible, page 150. He describes Jacob and Esau, and he says that when the boys were little, their characters could not be judged properly. They were like the myrtle and the thorn bush, which look alike in the early stages of growth. But after they have attained full size, he said the myrtle is known for its fragrance and the thorn bush is known for its thorns. And I just want to elaborate on this analogy for a moment because what Ginsburg is saying here is that the boys could easily be dis distinguished at birth based on physical attributes. We know that Esau came out like a red, hairy garment, whereas Jacob was a smooth man with a lighter toned hair. And so, although they didn't look alike at all, Ginsburg here is really focusing on their characters and their moral fortitude. And so what he's making the analogy of is when you have two seeds coming out of the ground, like this image here. At this early phase, you really can't distinguish what kind of plants these are going to be and what kind of fruit they're going to bear. But over time, as they continue to grow and attain their full size, then you're very easily able to identify what their character is. And the analogy that he's drawing here is that Jacob is basically synonymous with the myrtle bush, which we see on the top right, a beautiful fruit-bearing tree that has a lovely fragrance. Whereas Esau, he compares to the thorn bush, which we see in the bottom right. And basically all it produces is thorns. And so again, it's, he's demonstrating that through all of his studies of all of the oral Hebraic literature, everybody agrees conclusively that Jacob was a good, righteous man and Esau appeared to be a wicked man on all levels. 
And this brings to mind um, the parable in Matthew 13, where Jesus even refers to these two seed lines, that there are the wheat, which come from, hep, from, from God, and the tares, who were sown by the devil. And Jesus talks about how they're, they're difficult to distinguish between them, that they look a lot alike, but they're still two totally different groups. And the only way you can really tell them apart is by the fruit that they bear. And we've done lectures looking at the wheat versus the tares, but I think this was a very appropriate analogy that Ginsburg used because it clearly identifies that there was something really different about Jacob and Esau on a, on a fundamental level. And I would extrapolate by saying that on a genetic level, these boys were different. And that would explain how they looked different, they acted different, their character and their morals were different, their goals and desires were different, and one was righteous and one was wicked. And so now we're going to go forth and look at a specific account that uh, Ginsburg describes regarding Jacob and Esau. Now, Ginsburg goes on to say that in their childhood, both brothers went to school, but when they reached their 13th year and were of age, see there, and were of age means that they had become men in the eyes of the Hebrews, their ways departed. For Jacob continued in his studies of the Torah under the guidance of Shem and Eber, while Esau abandoned himself to idolatry and an immoral life. Both were hunters of men. Esau tried to capture men and turn them away from God, while Jacob tried to turn them towards God. I think that's an interesting analogy there as well. We know that Jesus told Peter, I will make you fisher of men. And essentially what we're seeing here is that both the boys were hunters of men in that Esau was a master of war. He was literally a manhunter. He becomes a manslayer later in life. Whereas Jacob is more of a fisher of men trying to lead people to God. Also, we see here that Ginsburg makes it clear that it was well known that Esau abandoned himself to idolatry. That means that he renounced the God of his fathers, of, of Yahweh, and that he began to fall towards other pagan gods. He goes on to say that in spite of his impious deeds, the word impious essentially means unholy, in spite of his unholy deeds, Esau somehow possessed the art of winning over his father's love. And Isaac failed to notice, too, that his older son, gave him forbidden food to eat. What he took for the flesh of young goats was actually dog's meat. Now this is really fascinating because at this point we haven't even been given, in the Bible, we, in Genesis, we haven't been given the, the Levitical and Deuteronomy laws that we see in those later chapters. That doesn't mean that the laws didn't exist. We know that there were Noahide laws that existed in those days. They just hadn't been written down officially until later in the book of Leviticus and Deuteronomy. But nonetheless, we see that the laws like commandments of your mother and your father and not being involved in idolatry and 
and so on and so forth. All of those laws still existed and preceded the book of Leviticus. And it was very clear in those times that there were clean and unclean foods, and certainly eating pig or dog was absolutely forbidden. And what this demonstrates is just how vile and wicked Esau really is, that, that when he was unsuccessful in getting venison, he would just simply go out and kill a dog and prepare that and give it to his father. Ginsburg goes on to say that Rebecca was more clear-sighted. She knew her sons as they really were, and therefore her love for Jacob was exceedingly great, and Abraham agreed with her. And he also loved his grandson Jacob, for he knew that in him his name and his seed would be called. And he said to Rebekah, My daughter, watch over my son Jacob, for he shall be in my stead on the earth, and for a blessing in the midst of children, and for the glory of the whole seed of Shem. Now, that's, that's the account that we just read in the book of Jubilees. So we're seeing here, back in the early 1900s, that this man Ginsburg, who was a, a vast student of all of the oral uh, writings, was quoting from the book of Jubilees in this account. Later, Ginsburg would say that, though Abraham had reached a good old age beyond the limit of years, he yet died five years before his allotted time. The intention was for Abraham to live 180 years, the same age of Isaac at his death. But on account of Esau, God brought his life to an abrupt close. For some time, Esau had been pursuing evil inclinations in secret. And finally, he dropped his mask. And on the day of Abraham's death, he was guilty of five crimes. He ravished a betrothed maiden, committed murder, doubted the resurrection of the dead, scorned the birthright, and denied God. And then the Lord said, I promised Abraham that he should go to his fathers in peace. Can I now permit him to witness of his grandson's rebellion against God, his violations of the laws of chastity, and his shedding of blood? It is better for him to die now in peace. Now, there's a lot of interesting details here in Ginsburg's account. Remember, this is based on all of the oral traditions that were passed down from father to son and father to son, going back thousands of years. This is basically rabbinic commentary about the Torah. And we are told in the Torah that God promised Abraham that he would die and go to his fathers in peace. And so I believe that that, that lends some authenticity to this account because Esau was a vile and wicked man. And what we're going to find out is that Esau did commit murder when he kills King Nimrod and his uh, soldiers. And apparently he committed these other violent acts as well. And so when God makes a promise, see here, I promised Abraham that he would go to his fathers in peace. God is not a liar. And in those days, Abraham would have been very downtrodden if he would have known that Esau rejected God, violated the laws of chastity, I know that that's not an issue today. The laws of chastity don't apply in many people's lives today. But back in Genesis, the laws of chastity were extremely important. People did not have sex until they were betrothed and married. 
That's why it says here that Esau ravished a betrothed maiden. A maiden is synonymous with a virgin, and betrothed means that she was getting married. And so when it says that uh, God says, how can I permit Abraham to witness his grandson's rebellion and the violations of the laws of chastity? That would have been a big violation to Abraham, and probably even worse, the shedding of blood. Knowing that his grandson was a manslayer and a murderer would have been devastating for Abraham. And so, like God said, it is better for him to die now in peace. And so it's interesting that according to this account, Abraham's lifespan was cut short five years on account of Esau. Now, what's really interesting here is that Ginsburg is pointing out some very interesting details about the kind of man that Esau was. He said that Esau had been pursuing his evil inclinations in secret. And then finally, he dropped his mask. And on the day of Abraham's death, he was guilty of all these crimes. What he's insinuating here is that Esau was like one of the first robbers, that he would dress up and put on a mask and go out and do his evil inclinations in secret. But eventually he got to a point where he became so brazen in what he was doing that he didn't even care if he was wearing a mask. And on the day of Abraham's death, that's the day that he committed these five crimes. And one of these crimes was doubting the resurrection of the dead, which we're going to look at in a moment, which has to do with when he sells his birthright. Now, Ginsburg goes on to elaborate exactly what this murder is that Esau committed. He says, The men slain that day was Nimrod and two of his adjutants. A long-standing feud had existed between Esau and Nimrod because the mighty hunter before the Lord, that is Nimrod, was jealous of Esau, who also devoted himself assiduously to the chase. In other words, King Nimrod, who's known to be this mighty hunter and a man of the field, was jealous because Esau, who was much younger than him, was also known to be a mighty hunter and man of the field. And so they were in competition with one another. And they were both the kind of men who were devoted to the chase, the chase of prey, the chase of men. They were robbers and killers. Ginsburg goes on to say that once when he was hunting, it happened that Nimrod was separated from his people and only two men were with him. And Esau, who lay in ambush, noticed his isolation and waited until he should pass his covert. Then he threw himself upon Nimrod suddenly and he felled him and his two companions. That means he killed him. The outcries of the latter brought attendance of Nimrod to the spot where he lay dead but not before Esau had stripped Nimrod of his garments and fled to the city with them. This is an interesting story here, where now Ginsburg is referring to another text known as the book of Jasher, or actually it's Yasher, the book of Yasher. In the book of Yasher, we're told a very detailed story about Esau and Nimrod's battle. And, and this is the great turmoil or journey that Esau overcame when he had to flee and finally comes upon his brother Jacob, who's sodding pottage. 
And we'll look at that in a moment. Ginsburg continues by saying, after slaying Nimrod, Esau hastened cityward in great fear of his victim's followers. Tired and exhausted, he arrived home to find Jacob busy preparing a dish of lentils. On this occasion, he was cooking lentils for his father Isaac to serve to him as a mourner's meal after the death of Abraham, which we see happened that day. Adam and Eve had eaten lentils after the murder of Abel, and so had the parents of Haran when he perished in the fiery furnace. The reason that they used lentils in the mourner's meal is that the round lentils symbolizes death. The old saying goes, as the lentil rolls, so death and sorrow and mourning constantly roll about among men one to another. Esau accosted Jacob and said, Why art thou preparing lentils? And Jacob replied, Because our grandfather passed away today, and they shall be a sign of my grief and mourning, that he may love me in the days to come. This is pointing to the resurrection. Esau said, Thou fool, dost thou really think it's possible that a man shall come back to life again after he's been dead and moldered in the grave? And he continued to taunt Jacob. Lift up thine eyes, and thou wilt see that all men eat whatever comes to hand, fish, creeping and crawling things, swine's flesh, and all sorts of things like these. And thou vexest thyself about a dish of lentils? Jacob replied, If we act like other men, what shall we do on the day of the Lord, the day on which the pious will receive their reward, when a herald will proclaim, Where is he that weigheth the deeds of men? Where is he that counteth? Esau says, If there is a future world, or will the dead be called back to life? If it were so, why is Adam not returned? And hast thou heard that Noah, through whom the world was raised anew, has he reappeared? Yeah, Abraham, the friend of God, more beloved of him than any other man, has he come back to life? Jacob replied, if thou art of the opinion that there is no future world and that the dead do not rise to new life, then why dost thou want thy birthright? Sell it to me now, while it is yet possible to do so, for once the Torah is revealed, it cannot be done. Verily, there is a future world in which the righteous will receive their reward, and I tell you this, lest thou say later that I deceived thee. And Jacob was little concerned about the double share of the inheritance that went with the birthright but rather what he thought of was the priestly service, which was the prerogative of the firstborn in ancient times. And Jacob was loath to have his impious and unrighteous brother play the priest who he despised all divine service. Now I think we're seeing some really fascinating details here. I mean, this is the ancient oral traditions and, and written traditions of the rabbis about what happened during the days of Abraham. And, and the stories go that Esau was out hunting like he always did. And on this particular day, he saw Nimrod come through. Nimrod didn't see him and he had an opportunity to slay him and he did. And it says that he killed several of Nimrod's soldiers and then the rest of Nimrod's soldiers pursued him. And that he fled in fear. And that entire day he was being pursued. And eventually he headed home 
where his family lived. And this is when he comes stumbling upon Jacob. And at this point, he's wearied out. He's faint. We said that that word means that he's just overcome some great toil or journey. And this is the conversation that he's having with his brother. That his brother, being a, a good Hebrew, is mourning for the death of Abraham. Abraham had died earlier that day on account of Esau. God took his life early. And just as the tradition of his fathers were, they prepared the mourner's meal of lentils. And Esau is not a man to follow tradition. He's not a man who's interested in, in uh, the God of his fathers. And so he comes in on Jacob, huffing and puffing, tired and thirsty, and he immediately starts to accost Jacob by harassing him over these lentils. And he even goes on this dissertation that, hey, you know what? Men eat whatever they want. Creeping and crawling things, which, by the way, are unclean. Swine's flesh, which is unclean. And he's like, and here you are vexing yourself over a dish of lentils. And, you know, Jacob goes on to talk about the day of the Lord. Th these men knew about the Proto-Evangelium. They knew that there was going to be a Messiah. They all looked to the Messiah. That's what we see in the book of Job, which is one of the oldest books in the Bible. He talks about his future Redeemer, and he even speaks of the resurrection, which we'll look at in a moment. But what this account demonstrates and, and clarifies is that the patriarchs were very aware of the coming of the Messiah. The patriarchs were very aware that men were going to die, but they were going to be resurrected. And Jacob even goes on to say that the pious men will receive their rewards and men's deeds will be weighed and their deeds will be counted. And then Esau, being an idolater and a non-believer and a man of the flesh, is heckling Jacob by saying, oh, really? Well, if that's the case, then how come Adam's not you know, alive? He's been dead a long time. I never saw him come back to life. What about Noah? And now you're saying Abraham's going to come back to life? And Jacob rebuttals and says, look, if you're so convinced that there's no resurrection and that today is all we got and that the future doesn't matter, then what do you need a future birthright for? Why don't you just go ahead and sell me the birthright right now? And, you know, you're hungry and you're tired and you're thirsty. I'll give you the food. You want the food and I'll take the birthright. And, and Esau has no problem scorning his birthright because he doesn't believe in any of the future birthright or the future resurrection. It's very clear to me that the Old Testament patriarchs did believe in the resurrection. They were quite aware of the prophecies. Most of them were prophetic in nature themselves. They all had the gift of prophecy. They all understood the Proto-Evangelium. They knew that the seed of the woman would give rise to the Messiah and that one day the Messiah would come and crush Satan's head. And we're seeing a demonstration of this here now. And I think it's another testimony of how Esau is the seed of the serpent because part of the qualification for the seed of the serpent is they deny the resurrection, just as Esau has done. And we actually see this translate later in the Bible in Jesus' day when he's dealing with the Sadducees, the ones who took him to the cross. And they also denied the resurrection. And as we'll reveal in a future lecture, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were the seed of the serpent. They were fulfilling the negative aspect of the Proto-Evangelium, which says that they will bruise the Messiah's heel.
And so just to clarify that the Old Testament patriarchs did believe in the resurrection, we have to go to the book of Job. Now, Job was a contemporary of Abraham. It's said that the book of Job is one of the oldest books in the Bible. And we have some very um, interesting verbiage in Job 14 that uh, most people believe is Job speaking about the resurrection. And it goes like this. Man that is born of a woman is of a few days and full of trouble. He comes forth like a flower, and then he's cut down. He flee also as a shadow and continueth not. And dost thou open thine eyes upon such a one, and bring me into judgment with thee? Who could bring a clean thing out of an unclean? Not one. Seeing that his days are determined, the number of his months are with thee. For there is hope of a tree, if it be cut down, that it will sprout again, and that the tender branch thereof will not cease. See, Job is using the tree as an analogy of man. And he's talking about the hope of a tree that... If you cut a tree down, it can come back to life. Verse 8, Though the root thereof may wax old in the earth, and the stock thereof die in the ground, yet through the scent of water it will bud, and it will bring forth boughs like a plant. But man dieth, and he wasteth away. Yeah, man gives up the ghost, and where is he? As the waters fail from the sea, and the flood decayeth and dryeth up, so man lieth down, and he riseth not, until the heavens be no more. They shall not awake, nor be raised out of their sleep. Oh, that thou would hide me in the grave. Here he's talking to God. Oh, that you would hide me in the grave, that you would keep me secret until thy wrath is past, that thou would appoint me a set time and remember me. He's pleading for the resurrection. If a man die, here's his rhetorical question. If a man die, shall he live again? Thou shalt call, and I will answer thee. Thou will have a desire to the work of thine hands. When he says, thou shalt call, he's talking to God. When God calls you, when God says, rise, Lazarus, just like Jesus said, in the last day, men will be resurrected. And Job knew this. For now thou numberest my steps, dost thou not watch over my sin? My transgression is sealed up in a bag, and thou sowest up mine iniquity. Here Job is recognizing that there is repentance and forgiveness, that God watches over our sin, and that our transgressions can be sealed up in a bag, and he sowest up our iniquity. And that's obviously through the Messiah. And surely the mountains falling cometh to naught, and the rock is removed out of its place. The waters wear the stones. Thou washest away the things which grow out of the dust of the earth, and thou destroys the hope of man. So Job, in, in Job 14, he gives this long prayer and summation of the fact that man is like, you know, flowers of the earth. He's here one minute, he's gone the next. He gives up his ghost, and he doesn't come back to life in this, in this era. But just like a tree, even though the tree has died and even the root of the tree has died, the living water can bring it back to life. And then he asks the question, if a man die, shall he live again? And he answers that question by saying, 
When thou shalt call, I will answer thee. And you will do the desire of the work of your hands, God. You have the ability to raise me back up. And you also have the ability to seal up my transgression in a bag. And the way that we know for a fact that Job is referring to the resurrection is a couple chapters later in Job 19 when he says, For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God, whom I shall see for myself, and mine eyes shall behold, and not another, though my reins be consumed within me. That is a very beautiful verse that demonstrates two powerful things. One, Job recognized that he had a Redeemer coming. He understood the prophecies, and he knew that one day his Redeemer would liveth, and that he, that is the Messiah, would stand at the latter day upon the earth, that the Messiah would come back in the last day. And even though Job's skin and his flesh would be destroyed by the worms, yet in my flesh shall I see God, not just in the spirit, but a bodily, physical resurrection that Job would come back to life one day in a glorified, resurrected body to see God for himself. And I think this is a good place to finish. I was hoping to get to Nimrod, but we'll save that for the next lecture. Lewis Ginsburg finishes this account by saying that the scorn manifested by Esau for the resurrection of the dead, he felt also for the promise of God to give the Holy Land to the seed of Abraham. He did not believe in it, and therefore he was willing to cede his birthright and the blessing attached thereto in exchange for a mess of pottage. In addition, Jacob paid him in coin, and besides, he gave him what was more than money, the wonderful sword of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, which Isaac had inherited from Abraham and bestowed upon Jacob. So according to the ancient oral rabbis and the traditions, not only did Jacob make a deal with Esau, where he gave him his birthright for the pottage, the, the food, the stew, because he was so hungry and tired, but also he paid him in coin. So he, he, he must have, they, they must have negotiated a price for the birthright. And lastly, he gave him what was more than money, and that is the wonderful sword of Methuselah, son of Enoch. Now, Methuselah is an interesting character. He is the oldest living man in the Bible. He lived 969 years old before the flood. And his name actually translates, depending on the translation, the man of the javelin or the death of the sword. And there are many ancient legends about the sword of Methuselah. And apparently, Isaac had inherited this sword down through the patriarchs, and he bestowed it upon Jacob. And since Jacob was not a man who used weapons like that frequently, and Esau was, according to the traditions, this was the icing on the cake for Esau to receive Methuselah's sword and the pottage, and that's the end of the story. It's a fascinating story. A lot of these details are not in the scripture, 
but we see them again in the Targums and in many of the uh, Dead Sea Scrolls and the ancient writings. And I think they really paint a, a really um, colorful story that when you go back and read the King James Version, the very short and obscure version, it really lends a whole layer of depth to what was going on in that era and what was going on between Jacob and Esau. And like I've said before, I do believe that Jacob clearly represents the seed of the woman and Esau represents the seed of the serpent. And we'll continue to explore that as the lectures go on. But for the next lecture, we're going to take a look at this interesting account of um, Esau slaying the mighty hunter, King Nimrod. So on that note, Godspeed, and we'll see you on the next one.